0: Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning, brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Today's episode of Moving the Needle features Dr. Devang Patel, Director of the Pre-Clerkship Curriculum and the Office of Medical Education here at UMB. Over the last two years, Dr. Patel and his colleagues have completely revamped the first two years of medical school into what's now called the Renaissance Curriculum. You can imagine this was a massive undertaking, an opportunity to rethink the sequence of the content and the methods to deliver it. This new curriculum launched in August of 2020, right smack in the middle of the pandemic. Dr. Patel will share with us the reasons for this curriculum redesign and some lessons he's learned during its implementation. Dr. Patel, welcome to Moving the Needle.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on.
0: We are so excited to speak with you today because this topic of uh, curricular redesign, it is, it is a biggie. It's a big effort, and we are so excited about what we can learn uh, from you on this. So let's just begin by having you tell us a little bit about what drove the School of Medicine's uh, curricular redesign. What needs were you trying to address, and uh, what were you hoping to accomplish?
1: Sure. I, I, You know, I think this is something that has been uh, in the works for, for many, many years uh, at our institution. Uh, what has happened sort of nationally with medical schools is uh, curriculums have been redesigned to shorten that pre-clerkship curriculum. So trying to get the students into the clinical space a little bit earlier. So traditional, the way it's been done for decades, if not centuries, I don't know how long it goes back. But uh, medical school education has been two years of uh, basic science uh, training, followed by two years of um, a clinical training, which we call the clerkship years, the you know the first, uh, the, when they start their clerkships you know, in the third and fourth year. And and many folks have uh, have said, you know, why are we spending so much time in the classroom when, you know, students really need to be uh, doing the work in the hospital setting, in the clinic setting, where the patients are. So there's been this this movement across the country and, and many schools, most schools actually I should say, have done this already even going back 15 years ago uh, to move to what we call a systems-based approach that's a shorter pre-clerkship curriculum. And what that means is our traditional uh, exposure and the way that many of our um, you know, attending physicians were trained was that you got anatomy, and then you got physiology, and then you got biochemistry, and then you know maybe second year you got the pathophysiology. So the students had to go back and remember everything about physiology from first year to, to try to understand the pathophysiology they learned in second year. It is not the most efficient way to probably teach that content. So the systems-based approach is that we go through each system holistically. So when we start, you know, the cardiovascular system, for example, we would learn about the anatomy of the heart, the physiology of the heart, uh, and the pathophysiology, pharmacology of the heart all at the same time. You know, we would learn about the cancers at the same time. Uh, Anything related to the heart would would come together, and it wouldn't be temporally separated. Uh, So that was... One of the big things was, was trying to get the systems-based approach, which is a more modern approach to teaching uh, medical students in, into place. And the other part, as I said, is trying to get the students an earlier clinical exposure. So one of the big things that we're trying to do is in this pre-clerkship time before they're on the wards, before they're in the clinics, still having the students get that exposure to clinical medicine. So when they learn about the cardiovascular system, they get to go practice the cardiovascular exam at the same time. So, you know, they're, they're tying those things together and it's not, again, temporally separated so that it's happening a year or two later. Um, and then the, the, the last part of this, I think, is, as I said, you know, trying to shorten that pre-clerkship curriculum, trying to get the students into the clinical setting earlier and what we found over the years is that there's a lot of redundancy in the um, pre-clerkship curriculum. There's a lot of content that's covered twice, right? Because you're covering it in the first year, and then in the second year, you're recovering it so that you can explain it to them better, so that they can understand the pathophysiology. And that's again not very efficient. So trying to remove some of that, and also, uh, and and you know, one of the one of the things that happens, I think, probably in any curriculum, but. When you have people that really love what they're doing, that's what they want to teach. And so we have folks that really want to go in depth into the weeds on on content that's really not quite relevant for a medical school education. Right. It may be great for graduate school education, it may be great if you want. I'm an HIV doctor and, you know, I could talk about HIV for for six months, you know, but that's not what the medical students need. They need a very concise uh, amount of information that's very re- relevant to them. Understanding that, you know, out of 160 students, only one student may actually go into infectious diseases or or think about a career in infectious diseases. So I got to make sure that what they're learning is relevant to all of them. So, again, trying to cut out some of that redundancy, trying to cut out content that really wasn't relevant for the medical students. um, And and again, shortening all of that so that the students, the way we've got it now, uh, they will enter the clerkship years. Two months earlier than previously, and that gives them a little bit more flexibility in terms of uh, electives that they can do, exploring medical subspecialties that they may otherwise not have had the opportunity to explore. And if they can explore it, how do they know that's what they want to do with their life? Uh, so those are things that you know are now possible uh, that that you know maybe weren't as as easy um, to attain for students previously.
0: Yeah, this sounds like a very uh, student needs driven approach to to the curriculum, you know, thinking about the the sequencing so that it's easier for them to retain the information, giving them more flexibility to explore new things when they are in the clerkship years. Um, it, it sounds really like you put the, the students front and center in in all these decisions that you made.
1: Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you saying that because I think it is important. Uh, you know, when we did when we launched our what we're calling the Renaissance curriculum uh, process, we had students. Part as part of the um, uh, groups that helped design the curriculum. So we had different focus groups. We had different committees, and one of them was a student committee. And so the students were giving us a lot of input on what they thought worked and what they didn't think worked. You know, one of the big sort of, uh, you know, banes of my existence is something called Step 1. And, you know, Step 1 is a, an exam that all uh, medical students have to take It's the first step of the USMLE licensing uh, process, so it's called USMLE Step One, and the students have to pass that exam in order to take Step Two, which they'll take later in the medical school, and then Step Three, which they typically take in their residency, and then they they can be a fully licensed physician. Well, Step One over the years has become uh, this exam that schools that sorry residency programs use as a almost screening method to decide who's a good medical student and who's not a good medical student. Do we want to interview that medical student? Not at all what this exam was designed to do. The exam was designed to measure minimal competency, right? So you can move to the next step. But because there's so much variation between school to school in terms of the education, this was this became a de facto, uh, you know, uh, how well do you do on this test determines whether or not I'm going to, uh, you know, um, Interview you like you see with an MCAT or an LSAT or SATs, you know that. But it wasn't designed for that. But anyway, the 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 reason I bring that up is that our students are so fixated on that Step One score because they take that at the end of second year before they start their clerkship years. So we needed to make sure that we addressed that, that we paid attention to the students' anxiety about Step One and making sure that our curriculum not only fulfilled our objective, our objective, the way I see it, and I think most of my colleagues see it, is we are preparing the students for their clerkship years, right? The idea of the first two years of medical school is to make sure that when you're done with that, when you get to your third-year clerkships, you hit the ground running, that you are prepared to be in that setting, which we think is the most important in terms of your clinical um, success, right, Is, is being able to do well in your clerkship. Married to that is your ability to do well on step one, right? And I think a lot of times our students see that our objective of preparing them for for year three is not the same as preparing for step one. They see those as two different goals. They're not. They're they're together. If I, if I do a good job preparing you for step uh, for for year three, you should be prepared for step one as well. And you know, so you know, making sure the students bought into that, that they were on board with that concept, uh, you know, that was important. Making sure that we looked at student wellness, you know, uh, understanding from the students that a five-week block before an exam is, is not good. You know, it's, it's not going to be good for their studying. It could, it's not going to be good for their retention. And it's not going to be good for their wellness. So, you know, taking into consideration all these things. And we had a great group of students that helped us, um, you know, give, a, give us feedback as we were developing our curriculum.
0: That's great. I think that points to the, to the challenges in health professions where you have these, uh, externally created, very high stakes assessments that, um, are designed to create this idea, you know, this, this equity among institutions to make sure that everyone has these basic competencies. Um, but it, it can butt up against, uh, a curriculum and, and and so always having to keep these. It's I'm I'm kind of seeing this balancing scale uh, and and trying and trying to meet the students' needs and the accrediting body's needs and you know the the vision behind the curriculum as well.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. And actually, I should I should point out here that one of the biggest wins for us has been the fact that uh, USMLE because of all the pressure from the, the from the medical student undergraduate what we call the undergraduate medical education side. To the chagrin of the graduate medical education side, the residency programs, USMLE uh, uh, Step One is now a pass/fail. So, as in, in the first class that will be pass/fail is the first class of our Renaissance curriculum. So, our current first-year students, thankfully, will be taking Step One without a score. They will know that they passed, and and that'll that'll be the end of it. And so. I love that because it takes a little bit of that anxiety off of us in the first two years. You know, students will learn because they want to learn, not because they have to be fixated on an exam that happens, this assessment that happens at the end of their second year.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like now the the onus is on the graduate medical education to rethink its uh, its entry processes and its, its matching processes and things like that to to make sure that now we know that this is truly minimum competency. Now, what do we do? Is that, is that kind of uh, where the ball landed on that?
1: Yes, yes. And um, the, I don't believe my colleagues on the GME side are too happy about it, uh, uh, you know, on a national level. But, uh, you know, as a person who spends more of my time now on the undergradu- and undergraduate medical education side, you know, this was longer overdue. You know, we would have uh, top students that we thought were just fantastic that couldn't get an interview in the most competitive um, uh, specialties because of a score on this exam. And, and, and what's very clear about all of that is that those exam scores don't correlate with the quality of that applicant or that ability of that applicant to perform in that specialty. It's it was it was just a way to sift through the thousand or five thousand applications or 10,000 applications, you know, it, and I get that. Right. It's really hard to do that. But um, it was to, to the detriment of, of many very talented and qualified uh, people that were told they couldn't do something they really had a passion for.
0: Yeah. Well, that sounds like a fortuitous uh, sequence of events, at least on the undergraduate side. That's great. Um, could you talk to us a little bit more about how you structured this process of the of the curriculum redesign? Who who you've already mentioned that the students were involved, which is fantastic. Who else was involved? How did how did you structure it? What what kind of work uh, did it entail?
1: Yeah, so we we had a, a curriculum council of a, a bunch of our education le- leaders here at the at the uh, medical school. And including Christina Sestone, who joined our group, um, and she's been just an invaluable resource. Uh, we were looking for um, folks that had successfully taught for you know many years in, in our curriculum. Uh, we were looking for people who had innovative new ideas of how we should be teaching. Uh, and, and quite frankly, just people that really invested in improving the quality of, of the medical education. Um, and it was, it was, it's, it's a diverse group. It's a, a great group of, of faculty. And, um, and then, as I said, we had the, 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 the student groups. And, and we also actually put out um, uh, you know, an opportunity for any faculty that was interested in, in medical education to voice their opinion. So there were so many different work groups with faculty from all over campus, uh, different departments, um, who could, from the basic science side, from the clinical side, you know, wherever, who could chime in and say, you know, these are some thoughts that we have. And, and then we had a core group of, of educators that were really working on, on designing it. What we did, uh, you know, as we, as we tried to, you know, we, we have these courses that we've had for, I don't know, it goes back a long ways. I, I, I feel uh, embarrassed right now that I can't tell you when the last curriculum uh, redesign was. I believe it was when Dr. Martinez, who is the current associate dean for medical education, was a medical student. So it's it's been a while. And and um, so we've had these courses that have been the same courses for, what, 15, 20 years or whatever. And, and now we're saying, well, we're going to get rid of those courses. We're going to have brand new courses, brand new uh, course leadership. And how do we organize this? Where do we decide the content goes? So what we did is we looked at uh, medical school curriculums from all around the country, and and I don't even know how many we ended up looking at at the end of it all, but it, it was many. And we just sort of looked at them and said, "Oh, that looks like a great idea. We should look at doing something like that." I like the way this course was organized. I like the I like the way that this um, medical school uh, structured the the um, chronology of their courses. You know, they did this system first and then this system, and so we 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 took a look at all of those things and tried to put together what we thought was the best amalgamation of, of those uh, different um, medical school curriculums.
0: Yeah, when you when you were looking at all of those uh, curriculums from other medical schools, had you already decided on the systems based approach, or was that was looking at their curriculum something that pulled you in that direction?
1: No, no. We we'd already decided that we wanted to go systems based. Um, that is something that had, as I said earlier, I mean it, it was something that um, most schools had already moved in that direction, and in a way we were a little bit behind the curve on that. So we wanted to make sure that that was the way we did it. Just a matter of how do you do it, right? Sure. How do you how do you structure it so it makes sense? And 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 I think there's going be there's going to be some growing pains. You know, we might find well we taught this. A little too early because the students weren't didn't have enough knowledge uh, to, to really uh, appreciate what they're learning and maybe that's something a, a piece of content that could be moved to a different course later in the curriculum. Uh, our approach to this is that this is a very dynamic process that this this is a process that is not set in stone we will need to continue to change uh, uh, things every year until we until we get the best um, possible curriculum product out there.
0: Yeah. What, how are you going to collect the data or the input or get the feedback in order to decide how things are working?
1: So we we, uh, we have several different ways of doing this. Um, one of the things is obviously the student feedback. We get student feedback on lectures. We get student feedback on the courses. We have focus groups with the students uh, in each course. Uh, we meet with the students curriculum reps so that we get that sense as well. Of course, we can look at uh, how they do on our internal assessments as well as things like step one, uh, you know, which at the end of the day has been the thing that everybody judges the success of a medical school on, fairly or unfairly, I would say unfairly. Um, but those are things that we can all look at to see how, how it's going. Uh, we have a, a quality improvement group. We call it the MECWI committee that is medical education quality improvement that, that is looking at how do we improve the course from year to year. Uh, My my specific job is the director of the pre-clerkship curriculum within our our structure in the medical education office. And so looking at how the courses that have completed have fared so far in the terms of the student evaluations and then comparing, you know, well look, this this course did a really good job with this, Um, you know, maybe that's something we can incorporate in future courses. Uh, those of our faculty that are leadership for the second year courses are keenly paying attention to what's happening with the first year courses, right? Because they have time, uh, although that time is getting shorter and shorter, they have some time to try to make improvements to what they thought their vision would be for these courses.
0: Sure. So your brave pioneers are, uh, are implementing a way and those kind of on deck are anxiously awaiting to, to see how that goes.
1: Yes, absolutely, and 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 you know everybody it, we're all it's a big team, right? Everybody's uh, collegial. We're all friends, and so it, it's it's nice, right? You say, wow, oh, I saw that you did this. You know, can you show me how you did that?" Can we, we would like to do this in our course, and um, it's great. I mean, it's so fun to see people doing that. And you know, my job sometimes is just to like make sure that everybody hears each other and 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 can can learn from each other, but. Uh, everybody's already reaching out. I you know, there's very little for me to do in terms of that sometimes.
0: That's so great. It, it's exciting sometimes. I mean, this is a big initiative. It's a big change. There's probably some, uh, you know, organizational culture and, and resistance to change that, that comes, you know, that's just a natural part of any, any big initiative like this. But what I'm hearing from you is that um, even more important is this uh, renewed creativity, this renewed sense of collaboration, this energy uh, that's coming about. Well we're all changing everything, right? It's not just me putting myself out there as a solo instructor trying this crazy new idea. The whole curriculum is changing. And so do you feel that that, that collegiality and that back and forth um, it uh, has really inspired some some changes that might not have otherwise happened if the if the curriculum, uh, we're staying the same, but individual faculty members were thinking about changes.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think there would have been a, we, you know, we, we we would have some incremental changes along the way, but they may have been limited to, to an individual course. You know, if I really liked, I you know, I wanted to do something with my course, well, I did it, but then there was less crosstalk with other courses. And we have a whole new structure in the Office of Medical Education. Uh, we have multiple layers of, of leadership now that allow us to you know engage people in that way uh, under the leadership of, of Joe Martinez, as, we, as I talked about earlier, Nirav Shah, who is our um, assistant dean for curriculum, uh, myself, uh, Norm Retner, who sees our longitudinal curriculum. Uh, he's the director of longitudinal curriculum, which is looking at how the students go from year one all the way through year four in, in terms of learning physical exam skills, professionalism, humanism. We talk about um, diversity and equity and talking about healthcare disparities, right? That, that's all under Norm Retner. And then Phil Dittmar, who's my sort of counterpart on the other side, he's the director of um, the uh, clerkship curriculum. So he's overseeing how the third and fourth years of the curriculum look. And then we have Connie LeCap, who is our um, assistant dean for assessment. We didn't have that position before right so now we have somebody who's dedicated to making sure that we do a really good job with our assessments as well and and not just exams but you know assessing our faculty and evaluating our faculty and assessing how our curriculums working so it's a it's really a great team of folks uh, and then as you said you know looking at, f- at people who are excited about curriculum change, you know, we bring, we brought in, a. a you know, I kind of think of myself as young, but I'm realizing that I'm not so young. So we bring in younger faculty who have great ideas about how to do small group teaching, team-based learning, um, you know, uh, trying to to get the most out of these interactions with the students. And yes, you're right. You know, there were there were definitely people that had been teaching for many years in our curriculum that had leadership positions that said, you know, this is not for me and that's okay right i mean we thank them for the for the years of service that they uh, gave to the medical school but this is just not their thing and that's okay we you know we 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 there's no hard feelings there we have um, folks that, that are interested in in, in in trying new things and and let's give them a shot at it
0: yeah has there been a new thing that you've seen that you find particularly exciting that you would like to share with our listeners a strategy or an approach
1: well, you're putting me on the spot a little bit. Yeah, we have to remember that we launched this whole thing in the middle of uh, COVID. So, so it's, it's, it's impacted our ability to do... Well, one of the things that we really wanted to do was focus on team-based learning. And so with that in mind, the, uh, we, with, the, with um, some generous donations from um, uh, uh, one of our alumni... Uh, uh we have the read rooms, which uh, were are formerly these small pods where we had students working, you know, with a preceptor with 16 students, 20 students in a small, what we called a small group, right? 16, 20 students with one preceptor is not necessarily a small group. And uh, that's what we had done for, for such a long time. We, we got those rooms renovated, read rooms, uh, so that, the, you know, we had eight rooms that are now two big rooms. So we can have eighty students, you know, actually ninety students in each room, with tables of, uh, you know, we have small round tables with five students per table, and the idea is that we would do team-based learning in in that in that setting, and um, that was that was how <laughs> that was our objective. That was our goal. Uh, again, I, I I shout out to Christina Sestone, who was such a champion for this for us as well. She. Even helped us get some of the scratch-off cards that we would use for team-based learning and all this, uh, uh, which I still owe you for, Christina. We'll make it happen um, <laughs> if she's listening. But we, we did all that, and then, and then COVID. So now we had to figure out what we were going to do with all of that uh, you know, teaching innovation that we were going to do in class. Now we're going to have to do it online we've we've we, we've adjusted we've we've done it we we've we've been able to i think the most well-received online small group teaching that we do is actually our you know modified versions of tbl that we do on zoom so the students you gotta remember the first year students came to campus in in the middle of a pandemic never having met another classmate perhaps right unless they went to the same you know undergraduate or something like that uh we told to stay in their houses, you know, couldn't go out and hang out. We didn't have any social activities for them that were in person. They were, you know, we tried to do things um, virtually. And 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 then we expect them to work together. And, and they did. And, and they, I think, you know, we put them in, in Zoom groups of five and they would go into their Zoom. It started with Adam Pouchet, who's, a, 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 you know, outstanding anatomy um, educator who's been doing this for years and Adam completely just went with it. I mean, he put the students into these groups and and they would work in their groups and then they would come back to the main room and he would talk to them and the groups could talk to each other and then but it got to the point that the students were so attached to the four people in their group that they didn't want me to change their groups uh, <laughs> midway through the year and I was like, "No, no, it's good for you. You guys don't know anybody. You've only been involved you've been in Baltimore for 6 months and you don't know anybody except for the four students that are in your group." So you need to see other group, but they, they and, and when we were able to get some of these in-person sessions and, in, you know, we petitioned the university to allow us to bring, you know, a quarter of the class in at a time, social distance, masking, the whole business, they were so excited to see one another and, and, you know, work in person with one another. And that's what we want, right? We want to, we want the students to really have that experience where they're learning from each other. And, and my, uh, uh, what I've seen in terms of the feedback from the students and what we've learned from them is that they, they really enjoy these small group settings where it's not a preceptor droning on in front of the classroom, but it's really them teaching each other and then having this expert in the room to sort of clarify issues if there are any. And I, it, it, I think it's such a better way to, to learn and, and it seems to be the way that the students prefer to learn.
0: That's great. Well, well, a testament to resilience on all fronts—the faculty, the students. Uh, you know, really layer upon layer of change and adaptation. You know, it, it would have been a, a a big change had COVID not thrown a monkey wrench into all of this, and then add that. Um, but but what I really love about what you're saying in this this team-based learning approach, and for our listeners, we have a lot of information on our website about TBL. It's a it's a great strategy. It's you know there's a there's a lot of information about how how that works. But what I just wanted to call out was how, uh, when I hear you speak about that, how much that approach really models what the future of practicing medicine could look like to this idea of, you know, there are people who know more than me about this, I can contribute this, this team-based approach, really changing the power dynamic uh, of what you would might have seen in a traditional medical classroom years ago really reflects you know the way care is being practiced in, the, in an ideal world right now
1: yeah absolutely you know uh, the, the, obviously the hierarchy is a is a big part of medicine in the clinical realm um, you know there's students and there's residents and there's fellows and there's attendings but uh, but the other big part of of medicine in the clinical realm is is teams right working in a team and you know if you are a good senior person on your team or the attending or the fellow, you should be listening to everybody on the team, including the, the, the third-year medical student that's rotating. You know, I, I, I'll give you a great example. I was just on service last week, and I had my whole team there, and I had a first-year medical student who has very little clinical exposure, right? And they are now allowed to do a little bit of shadowing. So he would asked, can I come shadow and, and see, you know, some of the stuff we learned in, 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 in class? I said, sure, come. And I remember that um, we were we were we were on rounds, and uh, we were discussing a patient. And all of a sudden, he 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 raised his he didn't raise his hand, but it was almost like you know a little timid. And I was like, Yeah, don't know, no, go ahead. What, what do you what do you want to say? And he brought up a point that nobody else on the team had thought of. It was a first year medical student. Like there 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 were uh, senior residents there, there were interns there, you know, and. And I was like, you're absolutely correct. We had a pharmacist, you know, and, and he was the one who brought up this very important point that, it, and, and I think we value that. And, and I think it is important for students to learn how to work in a team because when they get to their clerkship years, everything is in a team, everything is in a team. Regardless of the hierarchy, it's still a team, right? There's still right. a team of people working together. And I think one of the things that students may struggle with is in the first two years of medical school, it's off. It's, it's traditionally been very individualistic, right? I need to do well on this exam. I need to do this, you know, on this, I got to get this score on my test. I want to do this on step one, but you're not working with other people to do that, right? It's just, it's, you're just trying to get this individual score for yourself. I want to get honors. I want to get a, I want to get whatever. Um, And then you get to the third year and all of a sudden it's not about that, right? It's about taking care of the patient and it's it's, a, 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 it's a, about being a part of this machine, you know, being a cog in this machine that functions well. And if it does function well, it takes care of a lot of sick people, you know, very well, you know, efficiently and, and at a high level. But if you're not used to that, you, you could mess that up, right? If you're, or you may not feel comfortable and, and we see students that sometimes struggle. I, all of this to say, I think TBL helps again with that team Approach to learning.
0: Yeah, yeah, and creating an atmosphere where it's okay to ask questions of your teammates and it's okay to speak up and to question something. I mean, the that that the student raised that point with you and with all those those senior uh, senior level medical providers is a testament to the culture that you helped create um, that yeah, they feel I, comfortable I, to say it.
1: He had no hesitancy. Yeah, none. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, it it was so refreshing because he he. I mean, in his, if I was a first, when I was a first year student, I would have been, I would have been scared, senseless, senseless to say anything in that setting. I would have just been there observing, but he knew something and he wanted to share it, and and it was the absolute right thing to tell us, and and uh, it was fantastic. And I think you're right. I mean, it's it's creating that culture. I, I think that's the other part of of being in the first two years of med school is you know, these are type A personalities, right? We are uh, us in medicine. And so you come to med school because you, you were the detail oriented person and everything had to be correct. And everything had to be right. And guess what? You're not always right. And, and when you get to medical school, there's such a pressure to be always to be correct. And and it, it's, it's seen as, as a failure to not know something uh, or you feel like, you know, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I don't know as much as that person or, or whatever it may be. I think the team-based learning really changes that dynamic, right? You're like, oh, well, they don't know either. Um, okay, that's okay. It's, a, it's safer, right? And, and I think that is what they the they, they students will convey to us is that it feels safer than having, again, a, a you know, a, a faculty member standing in front of the room ask you a question and you feel put on the spot and you yeah. don't know how to answer and everybody's judging you and everybody thinks you're dumb and blah, you know, we don't want any of that. That's right. not a helpful way to learn.
0: I also think the the advantage of TBL, particularly in this const, context, is that it it emphasizes information seeking, asking the right questions and then gathering the information. I think the Um, the volume of medical information that's available it's it's you couldn't possibly teach it all right you couldn't possibly teach everything there is to know and so creating those systems where students are comfortable asking those questions evaluating the literature you know making uh, making decisions based on what they're reading um, you know that's going to be so important for them as as they uh, move forward in their careers as well.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, you, you hit the nail right on the head. We, we, we worry so much about critical thinking skills. We we worry so much about, you know, I, I've had, um, you know, physicians that train me that said, you know, when I learned this, the book was this thick, and now it's six volumes, you know, there's no way you can know that all. And, you know, learning that you can look stuff up, where to go look it up, you know, and, and, it's one of the things I try to teach residents and students when I'm working with them on the wards all the time is that I don't know all this stuff. You'll see me on the computer looking things up. And, you know, I think you got to, you got to model that behavior so that people feel like you don't always have to know anything. In fact, you, you, if you think you know everything, then we're in a bad place because there's, you're not going to be a very good physician. So, you know, knowing how to go look for stuff and, 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 and doing it regularly Right. Right. You know, not assuming, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember this, but but let's just double check and make sure we're OK. Right.
0: Right. And and normalizing it to the point where you don't have to shut your door and, you know, pretend like no. you're hiding <laughs> while you look no, this up. No. This is just what we do. Right. we just. Right. Yeah. That's great. So um, speaking of, you know, working, you know, with students on the floor, you know, again, we talked about COVID hitting, you know, during this curriculum change, but you also work in infectious diseases um, during one of the worst infectious diseases that that any of us could probably ever remember. So how did your, your uh, life as a medical practitioner, as a medical educator, as, you know, just uh, a, a human being going through this. How did all of those intersect and inform each other? And and how did you get through this year? I guess is what I want to know.
1: <laughs> how did we all get through this year? Um, so uh, my wife is also an infectious diseases physician. So uh, you know, just going on a personal level, you see this pandemic, and um, and we had all the same fears as everybody else except that we were both people that would very likely be taking care of people with COVID. When we, when we knew very little, and uh, my wife is not in, in, in academics, she's in private practice, but she was seeing COVID patients every day. And, you know, because my time is split between clinical work and, and you know, with the medical school and stuff, it wasn't the same for me. But you know, that was a big thing. I mean, she, she, you know, does she come home and hug the kids? Does she go, you know, and, and take a shower first to, uh, you know, uh, all this stuff that you, we, at the beginning was so scary and you didn't know. And all you worried about was your family and children. And, and then for us, there were two of us. And, and how was that going to play out? Well, are you going to be on, are you going to be clinically doing this? And, you know, it, it was, it was a little bit stressful in the beginning when we just didn't know very much. Um, and trying to figure out childcare, and all, yeah, everybody's been dealing with all of the same stuff, right? And then, of course, the colleagues that I work with are all doing the same thing. They're all physicians that are working. You know, uh, Dr. Retner, who I just spoke to you about, is is uh, um, uh, he works in the uh, in our intermediate medical care unit. So that's our step down from the ICU. So he's taking care of patients there with COVID. Dr. Shah is an intensivist. So he's taking care of patients in the ICU with COVID. Dr. Martinez is an emergency medicine doc taking care of patients in the, you know, Dr. LeCap is a psychiatrist. Patients still come in and she's seeing them in clinic. I mean, I think her situation is probably... The scariest because you didn't know who had COVID and who didn't, right? And Dr. Dittmar is a hospitalist, so we were all seeing these patients um, to some some varying degree, and we had to keep doing all of that while trying to, uh, you know, let's not leave our legacy curriculum out of this. Our our now third year students were in their second year, and you know we're planning our new curriculum. The first and second years are in their legacy curriculum, what we call the legacy curriculum, we had to pivot and make sure that they got all their education completed via Zoom for the second year and for the first year uh, to get them through to summer. Our uh, curriculum service support staff, the the, the IT folks here are just amazing and really, um, you know, helped us uh, to navigate Zoom. Zoom has become our best friend. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's bad. but um, And so they helped us with all of that. So we were doing that. And then, you know, trying to take care of really sick people in the hospital and trying to stay on top of the literature. And, you know, but I think what got us all through that was our colleagues, our collegiality. You know, people, we're, we're all in the same boat. We're all working together and um, whether it was on the clinical side or the medical school side, it it it, it just, that was what we did. And, and we sort of pulled together and, and knew that we had to help each other. And, you know, it's nice because there are people that understand the, your language, right? They understand what you're going through. It's not something that maybe you can explain to family members or neighbors or friends, but these are all folks that are going through the same thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, really. And we, have an, that- we have
1: an awesome team, so that helps. <laughs>
0: Yeah. That comes through loud and clear, and yeah. just on behalf of you know all of us here at the universe, I mean we just cannot thank you enough for i mean the the level of service that that people contributed uh this year and always, but especially this year it it does not go unnoticed, and we just want you to know how how grateful we are looking uh looking to brighter horizons i guess as as you know as we're hopefully on the waning side of of the outbreak. Uh, crossing fingers here, we're recording this at the end of April. Um, and, and looking at now that you're getting ready to, to launch year two of this curriculum, what are, what are some things on the horizon that, uh, that you find that you're particularly excited about or that, that you think might really continue to, to, as we say on this, you know, move the needle in medical education?
1: Well, first and foremost, we are excited to have students back in person. I, you know, the worst part of all of this for us has been not having that uh, interaction with students uh, and and seeing them in the hallway and having them come up to you randomly to just discuss something. And, you know, I, I we, we, we started doing... Um, uh, we call them wellness meetings, you know, all, all of the, the faculty over here at an Office of Medical Education and Office of Student Affairs. We set up um, uh, Teams, Microsoft Teams meets, uh, meetings, uh, it's, uh, what is it called, uh, bookings. They have bookings where you can make yourself available and people can just click on and say, I want to meet you, you know, on Friday, twelve fifteen for 15 minutes. And so we started doing that because we saw that a lot of the students were struggling with COVID and the isolation and all of this. And it's it's the one constant. You know, uh, I just wanted to say hi. I hadn't I hadn't talked to any faculty and, and I wanted to say hello. And uh, I just wanted you to rem- like, you know, uh, make sure you remember who I am or that I'm a student. And I was like, yes, yes, we remember. But I think, you know, that that was a part that we didn't probably appreciate up front would be so difficult for everybody not not just the students but for the faculty as well because we enjoy we get energy from the students right we we the learner provides us that that enthusiasm and and um joy that allows us to to do these things so when you're not in yeah you can do it over zoom but it's not it's not quite the same it's so funny i i i um i've done so many lectures this year for the for the for the first year medical students and uh, we, we had them coming in person a little bit in the fall. And then when the numbers went up, we, we didn't. And then after spring break, we have them coming back. And um, when I when I wander upstairs to see how things are going up in the um, read rooms where where they're coming in for small groups, they're like, that's Dr. Patel. Like, <laughs> it's like that's, that <laughs> that's that guy. That's that guy from the Zoom. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm real. Um, now you know how so,
0: celebrities feel.
1: <laughs> it, it, it's It's a little... Uh, I didn't want to say it like but it, it it's 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 a little weird. It's like that. It's like you know, I'm just a, an old guy that teaches but but because they haven't they've only seen you on Zoom. Yeah. It's like, "Oh my gosh, there's there's a person that we've been learning from and they're here and 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 you know, we can have a conversation with them and all this stuff." So, I I think that's 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 not moving the needle. That's moving back. To where we should have been to begin with, right? I know. I know your question was what's moving the needle, but I think that alone is a big uh, win for us. But um, in terms of moving the needle going forward, I think it's more about trying to implement, um, uh, you know, keeping keeping TBL going, but trying to implement other ways to improve um, active learning. You know, making sure we're we're trying to shorten all our lectures so that you know we're we're making sense of what we know about adult learning you know that people don't want to sit for 50 minutes straight in a, in a chair it's just not a good way to learn so trying to shorten the duration of lectures giving more lectures and you know like instead of doing two 50-minute lectures do three 35-minute lectures or something like that um, trying to we, we use turning point or you know audience response systems um, trying to find other ways to engage students um, so that this this material isn't just memorization but it actually sticks and 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 they can and as I said you know critical thinking for us is such a big part of what we do and making sure that the students can apply the knowledge and and that's where I think I'm still really going to be leaning on some of our faculty you know especially the younger faculty who are so enthusiastic about teaching to come up with some 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 newer innovations of how we can do this better.
0: Yeah, that's so great. Well, I uh, I hear two things loud and clear, which are engagement and connection. And I think that you know we can look at all these innovative approaches and and new technologies coming down the pike, and that's so exciting. But I I think it's it's important to remember, as you've described so well, that the essence of teaching really comes down to those two things: making those connections. You know, which you which you felt the lack of during this. This distance, um, and then seeing this engagement as you've as you as you've changed the curriculum to really get the students more involved. I just I think our medical students are so lucky. It makes me so excited for education and the future of healthcare. Just to know that you know that these students are going to be out in the world having had this this foundation, and it's a it's a really great. Thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for sharing it with us today.
1: Absolutely.
0: Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash FCTL to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.